Larry and Judy Gentis have produced a series of talks about Bible characters. Today, Judy tells the story of Bathsheba and King David. I wish, oh, I wish I had been brave. Sometimes you have to take the courage to say that unpopular word, no, even to kings. The problem is you're almost always going to get a backlash for saying it, but that doesn't mean to say you shouldn't say no, especially to kings. This kind of sums up the events that led me to where I am now. But let me tell you the story from the beginning. My name is Bathsheba and I live in Jerusalem. At the time, I was married to Uriah, a colonel in the army, and we were at war, as usual, with the Philistines. He was a good husband, not terribly spectacular, but he did deeply care for me and the life we shared together. He was away a lot, but I couldn't complain, though. If all the men stayed behind for their wives, we'd be under the Philistines' rules, and nobody wanted that. So he was away at Rabbah on that day. Our armies were besieging that town. It was a hot night, so I thought it would be refreshing to take a cool bath. And because of the heat, I left the windows open. That was a mistake. I wasn't even thinking that anyone would be watching, but actually somebody was. Soon after I'd finished and dressed up in night clothes, there was a knock on the door. It was unusual to get visitors at that time of the night, so I figured something must be wrong. I went and opened the door, and there were soldiers from the palace guard, and I was summoned to the king. I was puzzled, but no more than that. I thought that maybe it was something to do with my husband, so I whispered a prayer that he would be okay. I'd only ever seen King David from a distance, but now, in his presence, it was a completely different matter. He was, how to describe him, imposing, charismatic, tall, good-looking, every inch a king. Had I not been married, I would have found him attractive, but I was, and chastity was prized in our country. His request, <laughs> his demand, took me completely by surprise. I was completely taken aback, not knowing what to do. One doesn't say no to a king, does one? Everything inside me screamed out, don't do this. But everything in front of me whispered, go on, go on. After all, he's the king. And King David was a handsome man. He had a charm about him that some men seem to be able to have, and they can turn it on and off at will. It's something I'll never, ever understand. But I digress. I capitulated. When I returned to my house that night, under the king's protection, of course, I asked myself, what have I done? The truth, the awful truth, was that I had betrayed my husband Uriah. Part of me was disgusted with myself. Part of me was flattered. And another part was very fearful. What if I found myself with child? But I reasoned that I had no choice in the matter. But in my heart, I knew that I did. I felt divided, broken. How do you even fit these pieces back together again? What I feared most came to pass. My time of separation didn't come, and I felt different than I'd ever felt before. You see, Uriah and I had desperately wanted children, and he did his part, but they didn't come. Even before the weeks went by, I knew I was with child, and that child was the king's, and not my husband's. I could not hide it. My husband was far away, so I asked to have an audience with the king, which was granted. 
I asked him if we could speak in private without his ministers and counsellors. So he put them all out and I told him that I was pregnant with his child. King David immediately understood the problem and tried to cover it up by bringing my husband back from the war zone for some desperately needed R&R. He was invited to the palace guard ostensibly for a meal and to get an update on all the battles. He plied him with wine and food, assuming that he'd then go home and what would follow would solve the problem. My husband had not seen me for some time and men generally have <coughs> needs after they have been deprived for some time, but he didn't come. He slept in the king's doorway instead. When David heard about it, he asked Uriah why he hadn't gone home. And my husband replied, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servant of my lord are camping in the open. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and my soul, I will not do this thing. My husband Uriah never did come inside. He never touched me. He went back to the front lines, and I never saw him again. Some days later, I received the news that he'd been killed in battle. King David had placed him in the most dangerous part, and I think he knew that he would be killed. What can I say? To give King David his due, when the days of grieving for my husband were over, he sent for me and married me. Later, our child was born, and we loved him, but he wasn't strong. I still felt awful because of what I had allowed to happen. It was sin. There is no easy way of saying it. My son became sick shortly after the visit of Nathan the prophet, and he died. Now I'm in the palace, in the, and King David does love me, but I will forever be haunted by that question. What would have happened if I had just had the courage to say that one-syllable word, no, on that fateful night?
Uzzolino is an Italian TV producer who lives in London. He talks to Michael Barclay about his love for all sorts of literature, art and music. We start with one of Walter's favourite pieces of music, Morgan, Morning, by Richard Strauss, played by the London Symphony Orchestra under George Sell, with soloist Elizabeth Schwarzkopf.
One of the things uh, I enjoy talking about on this programme in terms of music is the cathartic effect of these very sorrowful pieces of music. You're an ideal person to analyse why it affects us in the way it does and why we want to be made to feel sad. It's extraordinary because it's it's you, I, I've wondered since childhood why I was seeking these feelings of almost something you could define them as slightly morbid of 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 sorrow and loneliness and loss. But I actually think that in the end you're actually seeking the ability to express what makes you happy. It makes me feel very alive. Often I think, why do I do everything I do and run around and and of course you need to work, you need to pay your mortgages, etc. But but uh, but I actually ultimately feel that art and beauty and music are the foundation of your happiness and stability in life. And I often say to my mum and dad, in the end, I could just literally be in my old room when I was five or six and just have music and, and a cluster of, close small cluster of people I love and I wouldn't need anything else in life. Where I to cross from land to land and sail afar by sea Descend the depths or climb the heights My Lord remains with me Before the blood ran in these veins The days ordained for me Where written in your book, O Lord Before I came to be Church of Scotland minister in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short Godspots, 
and today he talks about tolerance. Ah, religious tolerance. Now there's a jolly good thing. Although my church officer recently said, I wouldn't have a statue to another god in here, minister. I've got enough to dust. We all know we should be tolerant of other people's beliefs, but come on. We also know that nowadays some beliefs are frankly just a load of nonsense. You see, being tolerant means letting other people have their own opinions and their own beliefs. But it doesn't mean that you need to buy into them. There is a difference between having an open mind and a hole in the head. Multiple blessings to you. Toodaloo the new. Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 139. It's followed by the Talis Scholars, conducted by Peter Phillips, singing Ave Verum, the true body of Christ, by William Byrd. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them.
Mary Haddow is Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Today her subject is Simeon and the Baby Jesus. Have you ever looked forward to something and when it happened, it was actually so much more than you anticipated? That, I think, was the experience of David Livingston. You thought I was going to say Simeon. But David Livingston, who was the explorer and missionary to Africa in the mid-80s, in his journal, he tells of the discovery of the Great Falls, which he named after Victoria, the Queen. And he tells about what that experience meant to him. He'd heard from the people that there was something up the river, but he was not sure what it was. He could hear the roar of the falls for miles and he could see the spray for five miles. And he could never explain, he said, the splendor that fell upon his soul when he looked on the falls for the first time. Suddenly, right before his eyes, the Zambezi River was a mile wide. It sloped slightly. And then it cascaded in a 400-foot plunge in a display of awesome power. He said that for several minutes, the sight literally paralyzed him. He knew that something was ahead, but his discovery was far beyond his wildest dreams. And I do think that that's what happened to Simeon. He knew the Messiah was coming. And he had waited and he had prayed for the day to arrive. He believed the Messiah would come in his lifetime to save his people. The challenge to his faith was that the prophets had been silent for 400 years. Israel was under Roman occupation. There had been many false alarms with people claiming to be the Messiah when in fact they weren't. So Jesus was expected, yes, but not to come the way he did. They expected him to come with fanfare, but he didn't. I don't think that Simeon approached the temple, that he was filled with the anticipation that he would be seeing a baby. I think when the spirit moved him, he would have accepted, accepted something fully formed to come to him, a grown man perhaps, but a baby But his reaction on seeing the child was to praise God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. He knew that the Messiah was going to save his own people. But in seeing this child, he recognized that it was going to be so much more, that Jesus had come into the world for all people, not just one group of people. Simeon perhaps didn't know what it all meant, which is true of anyone who makes a great discovery. I'm certain that Christopher Columbus had no idea of the magnitude of his discovery that he was opening opening up a whole new world. 
And I'm sure that it never dawned on the Wright brothers that they were going to be the pioneers of space travel. And little did Simeon know that the child he held in his arms was to have such a dramatic and forceful impact on the course of human history. But he did know that something great and significant was taking place and he was part of it and he recognised it. And then there's Anna in her mid-80s, a picture of the constancy of faith, worshipping and praying. Here are two people near the end of their life still serving and worshipping God and aware that something significant and great was taking place and that they were part of it. And being aware of that fact, they both responded. Simeon singing the praises of God and Anna sharing the good news with anyone who would listen. Sometimes it's good to be reminded that age does not exclude us from being part of God's mission. We're never too old to be part of God's work. We're never too old to sing his praises. We're never too old to share the good news. We're never too old to hear the story of how it all began. Someone said to me recently, well, Christmas is just for children, isn't it? I'm sure we've all heard some kind of form of that said. And in many ways, it is for children. We celebrate Christmas for the children, not just our own children, but for all children. We do it more than that, just for the next generation, but for all God's children, no matter their age. Or we should. You see, I believe that at some level, we recognize that there is an enormous security in the Christmas story, even for those who are not Christian. Perhaps because Christmas seems like a respite from fear and despair. And this beautiful and intimate story of love and birth and mystery has a power to touch even the hardest of hearts. And we want to pass that security and hope on, not only to the children in our midst, but like Anna, to share the good news with all who are searching, who are waiting, who are listening. And that's not just children. But on Christmas Eve, at the early service here, the children in the church were chattering excitedly. You could sense the anticipation they felt. Perhaps it was the gifts that they were expecting to receive that had them excited. I really don't know. But at one point in the evening, they knew there was something great and significant taking place. Something from long ago, and yet they were part of it. As people came forward and lit their candles from the Christ light at the centre of the Advent wreath, and then passed it to their neighbour, who in turn shared that light with the person sitting next to them. And as the lights were dimmed, and young and old sat together, and we continued to worship at the manger by candlelight, there was a reverent stillness, and a quietness, and young and old alike became aware of the great and significant thing that had happened 2,000 years ago. Young and old alike became aware that they were part of something greater than themselves, and they heard again the stories of our faith.
as we prepare to leave one year and enter another. Let's take this thought with us. We have a story to tell of God's love for the world. We are part of something greater than ourselves. And we all have a part to play. Simeon took the child in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation. Revelation.